And like I said, I'd only been a Christian for just a little while, right? So I didn't have anything wise to say. I said, the first thing that came to my mind that might help my brother, here he is hurting, bleeding all over the place. I said, hey man, I just got to tell you, every rose has its thorn. (laughs) And if you don't know, if you're too young, that is off of a late 80s glam rock song that made Poison famous as far as ballads. Every rose has its thorn, right? Every night has its dawn. Every cowboy sings a sad, sad song. So came out of my mouth. Hey, bro, I just want you to know every rose has its thorn. And he stops sobbing just for a minute. He looks at me and goes, did you just take that from a song? I said, no, no, man. I mean, it might be on a song, but I mean, it just came to my mind. I'm just trying to encourage you. He's like, well, bro, I'm pretty sure you just ripped that off a song. I said, well, listen, I'm just trying to help you, you know? And I had this look like, I can't believe I just got busted, A. And then B, I can't believe you have a problem with me. I'm trying to help you. And he's like, well, it didn't help me when I heard it on the radio an hour ago. It's not helping me now. Guys, we can, we can struggle with where it is that we get our wisdom, right? Isn't it interesting how much of the culture we pick up and we make our own and we call wisdom? James is going to talk a little bit about that today for us. Look in verses 13. We're going to read it up to 18. It should be on the screen too. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly unspiritual and demonic for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist there will be disorder and every vile practice but the wisdom from above is first pure then peaceable gentle open to reason full of mercy and good fruits impartial and sincere and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace now james is saying something really key we hammered on this last week He's repeating it in a different way this week. He says this, wisdom is not just knowing things. Wisdom is not just having a bunch of knowledge trapped up here. It's living in light of what you know. It's living and walking out your understanding, the insight that's come. That's what wisdom is. He's not, he's not, he's saying, don't tell me, don't tell me how wise you are. Show me how wise you are. James overall is a show me book, isn't it? Maybe you've picked up on that. It's a show-me book. As Jeremy prayed this morning back there with the guys, you know, we're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. James hammers that. And he shows two different wisdoms. Did y'all catch that? A godly wisdom and an earthly wisdom. He's saying go and get godly wisdom. Getting godly wisdom is just seeing reality from God's perspective. It's just understanding what's going on around you from God's perspective perspective and living according to it and guess what the world calls that foolish the world calls that stupid right getting worldly wisdom or what james calls here even demonic wisdom getting that is just living in light of what the world calls wisdom looking at the world and the culture's perspective of what wisdom and insight is and then living in light of that and guess what god calls that foolishness You see how they fight each other. God calls that stupidity. And James uses this word to describe how we're supposed to walk it out. I don't know if you guys caught it, meekness. He says we're supposed to walk it out in meekness. 
Now, I will tell you as a dude, and maybe some of you dudes in here can agree with me, I've always struggled with that word. It feels feminized. I feel like our culture has feminized the word meekness and maybe even gentleness to a certain degree, right? It feels like it strips away all the testosterone. And I know as a young man, I really struggled with that, that I was supposed to be meek. And I always had envisioned in my mind a little girl playing with a puppy in a field of flowers. And I thought, man, that's what I have to be. That's one of the things that made it difficult for me to call out on Christ is because I wanted masculinity. And one thing I didn't understand is Christ is the most masculine man who's ever lived. There's never been anyone that's breathed there on this planet that has had more masculinity than Christ himself. You know, the Greek word used for meekness here, the Greek word occurs a lot in extra-biblical literature, non-biblical literature. And most of the times when you see it in non-biblical literature, it refers to a horse, a wild stallion that has been broken down and trained so that it could have a bridle and be led. So what it is saying is the power is still in the horse. The horse is still strong, but he's not flagrant. He's not all over the place. He's not unbounded, but he's actually restricted. He's got parameters. He's reined in, focused, disciplined. We don't think of meekness that way. But meekness is steerable. That horse is steerable. So don't think, don't think little girl with a puppy. Think ninja assassin, men discipline, waiting for the perfect time. That's what meekness is. That's what meekness is. And why? Why does James do this? Why does James say that we should be meek? Because if our wisdom is not steered and directed, think bridle, if it's not steered or directed by God's wisdom, by God's insight, it will be steered and directed by broken creation, both man and devil. It'll be steered by broken creation, by culture, by the city. By the world. And these two wisdoms, they don't typically line up, do they? You could write this down if you're taking notes, but in 1 Corinthians 3, and we'll have this up on the screen too. Man. It says this Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Did you catch how he's doing that? Wise in this age. That means wise according to the world. Wise according to culture, right? Let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, and they are futile. They're stupid. I like that word better. They're wasteful. They're dumb. Now, godly wisdom might look like foolishness to the world, doesn't it? Baptism. Think about it. It seems pretty silly from the world's perspective, of course, right? Tithing. I mean, it seems, seems foolish, right? Hey, church planting. I exhaust the statistics. I overspeak them. But again, it would have been easier to plant a Burger King in Knoxville than this church, statistically. Statistically, 85% of legacy churches fail, <laughs> Right? Who does that? I mean, we have Dave here this morning. Y'all should meet Dave before you leave. He, this is his first Sunday with us. He's the fourth and last part of our initial church plant team. This is his first Sunday with us. He's moving his family all across the country, right? Took a massive pay cut, massive pay cut to do this. Moving his family away from all of their extended family, everything they've ever known as home, to go all the way across the country 
to plant a church. And don't you know from the world's perspective that that's just stupid? Why would you do that? From the world's perspective, from the culture, they would always say, why would you not chase the dollar? Why would you not stay where it's comfortable? Why would you do that? That's just dumb. That's stupid. The idea of all of this stuff is stupid. Fostering kids. That's something that the culture will look at and say, why would you do that? That's money you could be giving to your real kids, right? Don't you know you're going to pour all that time and investment into that child and have to give it back? He's going to go back to his parents. She's going to go back to her parents. I mean, why would you do that? Save your money. You know why these things look stupid to the world? Because Jesus looks stupid to the world. Christ looks futile, foolish to the world. Thus, why am I saying all of this? Some of you are being called to do very crazy things. Some of you will be doing crazy things, have done crazy things. And according to the world, it will look like foolishness. And the world will look at you, and the world will use its culture and its wisdom to make you feel foolish and wasteful and thoughtless, and you will feel guilty from it. They'll try, the, the guilt will start to bubble up. Maybe they're right. Maybe this isn't sensible. Maybe this isn't a good idea. Just know, my encouragement to you, before I push on, is for the rest of your life, Christian, for the rest of your life, the things of Christ will always look foolish to the world. Forever. There is no getting around that. I love what James does here in this passage. He takes us to the major fuel source for this real crappy wisdom. The coal, the oil, the food that feeds bad wisdom is nothing more and nothing more complicated than self. Me. Myself. Self-regard. Self-fixation. Self-fascination. Right? And he shows us. It's got symptoms to it. And these symptoms are bitter jealousy, he says, and selfish ambition. And these things are found anytime man works according to man's wisdom. Because this wisdom always points to self and it produces self-glory. It always does that. In our little expanding universe where we're always in the middle, always in the center, God's in the periphery orbiting us. It's about our story. That's where you will find man's wisdom. It's infatuated with self, preserving self, self right on the throne. That's what we see. The narrative of our lives become me. The story, the narrative, the arc of our story becomes me. Me, I'm the cast. I'm the director of my story. I'm the producer of my story. The movie poster of my story has me in the middle of it. And guess who's the hero of my story? Me, you guessed it. Unless it's a tragedy and I'm suffering. Then I'm a suffering hero, right? Hero's still me. It's me. And guess what the story of my movie is? It's all about me, right? This is what you will find driving culture's wisdom. It will drive it. And we're like this from birth. This is the foundation that's built from us since we come out of mama. This is our factory settings. And I know some of you are thinking, get them, Luke. Get them, Luke. But listen, I'm preaching to myself right now, okay? I'm preaching to you too, Christian. It's amazing. Listen, it's amazing how we can adopt a little bite of wisdom that we get from the culture and make it our own. A little thing here, a little snippet, a little lyric, a little movie line, 
a little, a little saying that we heard Grandpa say. And we just make it part of our wisdom structure that everything filters through and helps us make our decisions. We just take it in. So listen, I'm going to give you some examples. I'm about to jump on some sacred cows and ride them around a little bit. So if you have a question, text it in. If you just have a gripe, just keep it, okay? I don't want to hear it. Um, and these will be up on the screen, too. You can put these up there. The first one. Here's something we hear all the time. You can be anything you want to be. You can be anything you want to be. No, you can't. No, you can't. It sounds good, though, doesn't it? Doesn't it have a ring to it? That's not godly wisdom, though. It it points to self, and it produces what? Self-glory. Presses God right off the throne and presses you right in the middle of the way. Basically, it says this. You're in control of piloting your life according to your own desires. God doesn't really care. He's not even really interested. He's not really in the equation. You can be anything you want to be. But I will tell you, God does have a plan. God does have a plan where we all fit in. I mean, think about the church. The whole idea about the church is that we bring things to the table as Christians, right? And these things are giftings, they're callings, but they all fit according to a plan that is not your plan necessarily. It's a plan that came by somebody greater by his own counsel. And that is how we fit. I'll tell you, your plan, your destiny will always be better and more joyful when it fits within God's plan, when it fits within his narrative. You can't be an NFL wide receiver. You can't be anything you want to be. Listen, some of you will never be concert pianists. You can't do it. You cannot. You can't be anything you want to be. But Luke, Luke, you're restricting people's dreams and hopes. Good if it's about you. If you're the central, then good. I'm glad for that because it's not about you, right? It's not about you. But we can get real consumed with our own plans and our own desires, and God calls this unwise. Unwise. I will tell you again, just to underscore it, the greatest life you could possibly live, the greatest, most fruitful, joyful, God-glorifying life you could ever live is when your plan is subservient and fits within his greater plan. How about this one? This saying, you are special. You're so special. No, you're not. No, you're not. But it, again, it has a ring to it, doesn't it? Don't we tell our kids that? You're so special, you know? It's not godly wisdom. It points to self. It elevates self above others. It puts us in the middle, and it presses God out to the boundaries. <coughs> Now, if what you mean whenever you say you are special is you were loved and cared and thought of, then yeah, I guess you're special. Congratulations. But if what you mean whenever you say you are special is you are above others because God has marked you for bigger things and everybody else is just a lesser underneath you, just glad that you showed up and are taking the room up, then no, you're not special. You see how this works? It sounds good, but it removes God from the center and places us in the throne. Now listen, you do fit into something special, don't you? You do fit into something special. You're a part of something bigger and special. You are. But you don't stand above others. Others are not beneath you. 
Whenever I tell my kids, whenever I talk to my kids and raise my kids, I want them to know that they're loved. I want my kids to know that they're thought of, that they're significant. I don't want them to be arrogant and prideful and think that they're better than others around them. Have you ever met that person? You can't tell them anything because they're special. Because mama told them they're special their whole life. And you can't tell, hey, I'm special. Are you talking to me like that? I'm special right now. Don't you know how special I am? You not get the special memo? How special I am? You're not. How about this one? You can make something of yourself if you just get an education and work hard. If you just get an education and work hard, you can make something of yourself. No, you can't. No, you can't. It sounds good. It sounds wise. It has a ring to it. This is something we've all heard growing up, right? It's something, but it's, it's not godly wisdom. It points to self and self's accomplishments and giving value to self because of our accomplishments, and it presses God off to the periphery. Again, it does the same exact thing. What does it even mean to make something of yourself anyway? What does that even mean? If it means not being a failure in life, I know a lot of people that work hard and have an education that are total failures. So what does that even mean to make something of yourself? I'd like to submit that God makes something of us. Whenever I say, if I just work harder and have an education, then I'm better than others because they didn't work hard, they don't have an education. I could pull up my own bootstraps. I guess they don't have any. That puts who in the middle? Me. Me, I'm the hero again because of what I can accomplish. I'm valuable and worthy because of what I did and what I've been through more than that person, right? See how we just pick this stuff up, though? Don't you see how easy it is? Here's another one. You create your own destiny. I heard this on sports radio the other day. I almost called in just to preach. I wouldn't have got past the first call or screener, but... You create, your own, you, you create your own destiny, but you don't. You don't create your own destiny. What this says is, I am in control and God will follow my lead. He is waiting on me. No, he's not. No, he's not. He leads you follow. That's how that works. It sounds good, but it's not godly wisdom. It points to self and produces self-glory. Again, it does the same thing. First of all, he's not waiting on you. God has a grand trajectory. What that means is he has a goal, an arc to his story, right? Think of trajectory is the best word for it, but he has one. He is in the process of redeeming broken creation to glorify him to his worth by adopting and grafting in a beautiful family and nation into his own bloodline that will celebrate with him forever and eternity at the same time as he's creating a new heaven and a new earth all pivoting around the central person of Jesus Christ and his passion of living, dying, and living again. All of that is his big deal. Your deal's not bigger than that. You see what I'm saying? Your deal fits into that. He already has a trajectory. He's not waiting on you. You get to be a part of that. It's not about you. I have to tell myself this all the time because very quickly I can get my life steered to where it starts to be really about me and the trajectory of reality is about Luke's plan. And it becomes on top of God's trajectory. We've got to be careful of that. We don't create anything. God's not waiting on me. He leads, I follow. That's how it works. Okay, this is my last one. I could do this all day. This is my last one. It's my life and it's now or never I just want to live forever. Yes, that is a Bon Jovi lyric. And I do like Bon Jovi a lot. Don't judge me for that. 
But I mean, who can argue with this? Who can argue with that? But Christian, I will tell you, it's not your life. You were purchased, right? You were purchased. Now, this is the deal. If what you mean whenever you say it's now or never, like you want to spend today as if it could be your last day, that's cool. That's godly wisdom. But if you want to squander today just to make yourself feel really, 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 really happy, that's really, really, really stupid, right? God would call that foolish. Now, you see, by nature, our soul wants to believe all of these things. Our soul slips towards that way anyway. We want to believe it. By nature, this is where we're at. We can't help it. But when we do, whenever we're the story and the center thereof, and we put people where God belongs, things are produced, symptoms are produced. Bitterness, jealousy, selfishness, false ambition, demonic vileness. We have all kinds of things that come out of us. Why? Because we're competing with people, measuring ourselves against people, putting ourselves on top of people, judging people. We do all of these things, and it's all wrapped up in the wisdom of man. We put people where God is supposed to be, straight up. And whenever we do that, we turn people into one or two things. They either become idols to us or enemies against us. Idols, people that we say, I need something from this person. They're in the center of my life and they're going to give me what my heart really wants, or they're an enemy, and I'm going to have to put myself on top of them to get what my heart really wants. We turn them into one of those two things. Well, I don't, Luke. I don't struggle with this. Let me ask you a couple questions. These questions stink. I'll tell you right now. I've been asking them myself all week. Do you struggle to celebrate other people's wins? Do you? No, no. I'm happy for them. What if they celebrate a win that you thought should have been your win? Is that so much fun to celebrate now? No, not really. What if they got something that you thought you should have gotten? Is it easy to celebrate with them? No. Why? Because you're in the middle of your story. That's why. Right? You're in the middle. Do you want them to struggle? I do. Listen, I'm okay with someone doing well, but I want them to hurt a little bit for it. I mean, if they got a great testimony, and look what God did. I want to hear some dark side. I want to hear this dark night that they almost didn't make it through, you know. It was tough. That's what I want to hear. I want to know that they didn't just get a handout, because I'm not getting a handout, right? I want them to hurt. I want them to struggle. There's a piece of me that says, you didn't deserve that. You just simply don't deserve that. That's because I'm in the middle of my story, Right? Do you always look for credit when things are going really well for you, but when things start to stink, you start to divert the credit elsewhere? Do you catch yourself doing that? I do. I do. The thing is, is whenever you start having babies and making kids, you have a lot more places to divert the... I didn't leave that towel there. Are you kidding? Who did that? Who did that? I'm always doing that. Where is your story about you? Where is it about you getting ahead? Where is it about your reputation being cleansed and sanitized? Ask yourself these questions. They stink. These are tough questions, but they're good for us. James even says that even the demonic realm produces this junky wisdom. Even the demonic realm does this. And it shouldn't be hard for us to imagine. Adam fell for it. Adam fell for it. The enemy comes, and he does something real interesting. He puts Adam in the middle and pushes God off to the side. Adam. I mean, sure, you could know the difference between good and evil, but wouldn't you rather know it on your own time? Wouldn't you rather know it your own way? 
You can be like God. You can see like God. God goes off to the center. Adam goes in the middle. The enemy is always good at trying to convince you that God is deficient at something. That's what he did with Adam, and that's what he will always do with us. He wants you to think that God is ultimately deficient, and you have to make up the delta. You have to cover the distance in between. He'll substitute lies for the truth all the time to convince you of this, to get you more in the center. How about this lie? God is not generous. He's not going to provide for you the way that you really want to be provided for. God's not generous. So you've got to go out and get it yourself. You've got to go out and get it yourself. How about this? God is not enough. God's not enough, so you've got to get something else in addition. Fill in the blank, whatever it might be. God plus something completes me. God is deficient. You're in the middle. God's in the periphery. The story's about you. Congratulations. That's what demonic wisdom will do. And this wisdom is narcissistic. It gets us looking at ourselves, And it always overpromises and it always underdelivers. Right? So, look at, go ahead and advance it to the next, I think it should be the 17th. Yeah. Look at James 3.17. This is where we find ourselves. We're pivoting right now. This is our pivot. And it looks like to me, I don't know if it looks like it to you, that God gives us a list. A list of something better. A better system. A better schema. A better way to live. Something we can interchange for the bad things that we just read about. Selfishness. Bitterness. Right? We can trade these things out. And I will tell you right now, I struggle with lists in the Bible. I don't know if you're like this. Maybe you are. Being honest, I struggle with lists because it's easy for me to detach. Because all the good words just start rolling into one good word. Right? But the wisdom from God is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, open reason, on and on. Good, good, good. I get it, I get it, I get it. Do you ever do that when you read the Bible? They all just kind of turn into one word? It's easy for me to detach. I'll tell you also, when I look at this, it feels to me, it feels to me like God wants me to just perform better. I, I, I took the liberty of giving you a comic strip, right? I'll ask you to advance it here in a minute. This comic strip came from Highlights Magazine. Y'all know what Highlights is? A little kitty magazine from like the 1940s. They're still making them. There's this comic strip in Highlights called Goofus and Gallant. Raise your hand if you've heard of Goofus and Gallant. A few. Man, look at little kids know what they are. Great. Goofus and Gallant. Goofus and Gallant is Highlights' attempt to teach kids Good behavior, good manners, good etiquette by juxtaposing two wisdoms in the form of two kids. One is Gallant. Gallant always does the right thing. He's always smiling. Right? He's like a 40-year-old trapped in a little kid's body. Always does the right thing. Then you have Goofus. Goofus. Not very politically correct. But Goofus is the opposite. So I took the liberty of giving you guys a comic strip. Go ahead. There it is. There's the first one. All right? I have to do this or it's going to ring on me. Okay, so you see, Goofus leaves dirt from his hands on the towel. Look how he's frowning. Oh, you're so sad, Goofus. Gallant washes his hands well before using the towel. All right? You see how this is working? Go to the next one. Goofus placed, places his knife and spoon on the tablecloth. Look how grumpy he is. He just needs Jesus. Look at him. So sad. My goodness. Now, look, this is my favorite one. That's okay. Leave it here. 
Goofus never washes the bathtub after taking a bath. Gallon also, or he always cleans the bathtub neatly after bathing. Okay, A. I was telling my wife the other day, I didn't know you were supposed to wash out the bathtub. After you, I just figured the soap washed it out after you took your bath. <laughs> so I told her, I said, I think Gallant's being a little bit of a goofus in this one. I'm just saying. <laughs> There's people dying out there, goofus. Get out there and <laughs> build the church. Wasting all your time cleaning a bathtub. It's already clean, right? So when I read this, it tells me not to be a goofus, but to be like Gallant. That is how I feel sometimes when I see these lists. Don't be goofus. Have godly wisdom. Be gallant. And right now you were probably expecting me to do a very typical, predictable thing, which is to bring you a list and say, see, interchange these, plug and play these in for the bad things. You don't have to be bitter and selfishly ambitious and horrible and demonic. You could be these things. Look how much beautiful these are. Just swap them out. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. You'll perform better. You'll be a better person. Right? I don't want to do that. I don't want to rip you off and I don't want to dishonor God. I don't want to just say, let's be more like gallant and follow the list. Have a nice week. Right? Go to a missional community. I I don't want to do that. If we do this, if we make it all about following a better list, a more perfect list, a better system, and we do well, guess who the hero is? You again. You again. The hero again. Luke, I don't get it. I don't get it. If we made our life about following a new list in order to please God better, in order to make him happier with us, in order to gain more favor, that is religion, we are now center console. We're in control again, hand on the wheel, the hero, the story of me continues. That's what happens. You'll go home trying really, 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 really hard not to do the bad stuff and really, 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 really hard to do the good stuff instead. That's what you'll catch yourself doing. The problem with this is when we do this, we again become the hero. And folks, we cannot be the hero of this passage. We can't. I will say this. If you hear anything I say today, please hear this. Hear this phrase. Wisdom has already come and he is a man. Wisdom has come to us, and he is a man. Jesus is the list. That's the punchline. Jesus is the list. Jesus is perfectly wise. He is perfect wisdom. He is fullness of wisdom. Think about this with me. I'm going to explain this a little bit, because it might sound a little goofy up front. Who is the wisest man who ever lived? Besides Jesus, who is the wisest man who ever lived, according to the Bible? Very good. Solomon. God said, not only will you be the wisest man who has ever lived, you'll be the wisest man who will ever live. The only person to have breathed there on this planet that was smarter than Solomon was Christ himself. Solomon followed the list. Solomon followed this list every day. But did it save him from repeated failure? No. No. It didn't. In fact, Jesus comes later in Matthew 12 and he says this, Solomon's a great guy, but someone better than Solomon has come and I am he. Solomon could only talk about wisdom. I am wisdom. Wisdom has arrived. You're looking at him. That's what Christ did. He was wisdom incarnate. He didn't just follow the list. He was the list. 
I'll put up a couple of scriptures. There it is. Forgive me for this. I didn't know how it would turn up on the uh, screen. But look at those. I had them lined up so you can see how wisdom is core and central to these. Colossians 2. In Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Jesus is the wisdom of God. How about this one? This is my favorite. And because of him, 1 Corinthians 1.30, you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God. He became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Jesus is the incarnated wisdom. Again, our list has come. Wisdom is a man. Luke, who cares? Why do I care about this? Great. Great. Christ is a list. But how do I stop being goofus? Right? How do I stop being goofus? I'll tell you, whenever you follow King Jesus, godly wisdom resets your universe. You have to step off the throne. You have to abdicate the central role of your story. The gospel the gospel says to you essentially, essentially, to step off your throne, to put your crown at the foot of a better king, right? It resets everything. This is how you stop being goofus. You empty yourself of your own life and place Jesus as a central character in your own narrative. Yeah, but Luke, how does this help? Well, whatever makes your decisions and sets your course is someone much greater than you now. Someone much greater than you now. And Christ shows us what this looks like, doesn't he? Doesn't he show us in the New Testament a life lived opposite worldly wisdom? Don't you catch Christ doing a lot of things that just don't look very wise from a manly standpoint, from human standpoint? Don't we just look at that and say, whoa, whoa, what are you doing? That's not how you plan a church, Jesus. Jesus, that's not how you start a community group. Are you serious? You just did that. I can't believe you did that. But look at that. Look at verse 17 there. But the wisdom, remember, Jesus' wisdom come down. But the wisdom from above is first pure. That word in the Greek means morally without defect. Jesus was morally without defect, even though he was tempted and pressed from every corner, every corner that he could ever be tempted. He was tempted, and he never fouled out. He was perfect and morally pure that he could be a perfect sacrifice on the cross. He is the better Passover lamb with no blemishes, with no weirdness going on. He was perfect because you're not, and that's how the swap needed to be made on the cross. Then peaceable, it says. Christ is our peacemaker. He is our ultimate peacemaker. Between God and us, as we declare war on God, he steps in and he takes the wrath that comes our way even though we deserved it. He's peaceable. He reconciled us. He made enemies that were total enemies friends. He's peaceable, gentle. That means without harshness. Like we said last week, he could have blasted us from the cross. From the cross, he he didn't have to say, Father, forgive them. He could have dealt out harshness because that's what we would have done to each other. But he he was gentle. He was gentle, single-sided on God's mission. Open to reason. That just means accessible. That's why you saw him eating with prostitutes and terrorists. And yes, I said terrorists and tax collectors. This is why we saw him doing that. He was accessible to people. This doesn't mean you can reason him away from his goal and his plan. It means that he was able to be spoken to and spoken with. That's what it means. 
full of mercy and good fruits. I love how it packages those two. Mercy and good fruits. It's mercy that produces something. Not indiscriminate mercy that doesn't have a very big price tag on it. But when someone has done something against you directly, you have informed mercy towards that person and it, it affects something. It produces something. It's a productive mercy. Impartial and sincere. I mean, do you see Christ in these things? It's easy for me to see Christ in these things. Jesus is the only one who ever lived this list, and he did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. He did it because his Father was the center of his life, his glory. He followed his Father's will. He listened to his Father. He was about his Father's business. Jesus never said, it's my life. It's now or never. I'm out to create my own destiny. It's all about me. Look out, world. Here I come, you know. You never see that attitude with Christ anywhere. And because he didn't have that attitude, he was able to defeat sin perfectly. That means you don't have to do it anymore. That means you're not chained to it any longer. We don't have to act like fools. We're free from that. We're free from that. That means we're free from selfishness and false ambition because we're free from being the middle of our own silly story. It's really not that fun to tell, is it? Right? And then I love how it ends. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Right? And a harvest of righteousness. Look at that verse. Remember, we're talking about Christ. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Listen, this is true about Jesus before it's true about us. He is our ultimate peacemaker. He sowed seeds that produced a harvest of righteousness, the church. This is a, we're looking at it. We are the harvest of God's righteousness right now. He corrals us and collects us together by the seeds that he's sown as our ultimate peacemaker so that we can go out and image him by sowing our own seeds of peace. We actually look like Christ when we do that. That's why this is there. He did the unbelievable for us. I mean, he sowed peace towards us when we deserved war. War. Now, I've got, I'm almost done in like 30 seconds. Um, but as I look at this passage, it does speak to three different groups of people, and so I do want to address you in this room. I, I think you'll fill in one or two of these groups, at least one, I would think. One of them is, I'd like to ask some of you, where is your story about you? Where is your narrative got you as the central, pivotal role, where the whole story collapsed if you're not there, right? Is that true for you? Where is worldly wisdom in you discounting godly wisdom? Where is worldly wisdom discounting godly wisdom for you? I mean, where is worldly wisdom cheering you on and godly wisdom convicting you? Where is that place? There is a place. Where is it? This is my appeal to you, and that is to turn from what is placing you in the center, to turn from that. A king belongs there. A king belongs there. Turn from that wisdom that seems good to your ears, right? But it's producing vileness everywhere you go. And then there's some of you that I feel like you might be a little bit more afflicted. Some of you might feel stupid, foolish, not logical for following some of God's wisdom. I mean, some of you I know have felt that way. You've done some very radical things 
in the name of God's wisdom, or God told me, or I feel God opening this up, and then later on you get buyer's regret, buyer's remorse, uh, old car salesman term. Make a big purchase, the next day you regret it instantly because of how big it was. And it doesn't help when you have the whole world telling you how stupid you are. Right? And some of you have done this. I want you to look to Jesus. Look to Christ because his moves from a worldly perspective were ridiculous. From mankind's cultural perspective and grid, what Christ did was pretty ridiculous. And that's how it's always going to be for you. That's how it's always going to be. Now listen, some of you are here, and I think that you might be very far from the Lord, very far from Christ. And I do want to say that your story with you in the middle, it stinks, and you know it. It stinks. It's not a fun story to hear. It's not a fun story to tell. Your life it's because you're in the middle. And you feel like you like the freedom of writing your own script, allegedly. But it always ends up looking like a big, nasty tragedy, doesn't it? Isn't that how it feels for you? That's how it felt for me. I'll tell you there's no freedom there. There is a king, though, who has a grand story of a rescue. There is a king there. It's a beautiful story, and he is the hero. So my appeal to you is to trade in your me-centered universe and put the king of creator where he always belonged, in the center of your heart, to abdicate your throne, to step away from your throne, and make him king. That would be my appeal to you.